0: We'll turn in your Bibles to back to 2 Samuel chapter 1. We stand forgiven at the cross. And I hope you can say that today, that you are forgiven. A eulogy it can be a, a salve on a wound for a grieving family. I do funerals regularly, being a pastor. Time to eulogize someone is a time to honor someone who's Recently passed away. And you learn a lot about someone from eulogies, from epitaphs or, 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 or obituaries even. Growing up, I would go, my mother's parents lived in Greenville, Mississippi, and so we went there several times a year to see them and to visit. And so we would come home, and when we would drive by, we had to drive by Munford Funeral Home on the way home. And if there were cars there, The comment, somebody would make the comment inevitably, well, we've got to call Mom Opal to see who's at the funeral home. Because every day she would read those, you know, obituaries, and she knew who was there. I want to read an obituary written about a mother. Pat Stocks, 94, passed away peacefully at her home in bed July 1st. 2015, it is believed it was caused from her carrying her oxygen tank up the long flight of stairs to her bedroom that made her heart give out. She left behind a lot of stuff to her daughter and sons who have no idea what to do with it. So if you're looking for two extremely large TVs from the 90s, a large ceramic stork, a toaster oven, slightly used, or even a 2001 Osmobile with a spoiler with only 71,000 miles, and a a thousand tools that we aren't sure what they're used for, you should wait with the appropriate amount of time and get in touch. Tomorrow would be fine. (laughs) This is not an ad for a pawn shop, but an obituary for a great woman. Mother, grandmother, and great-grandmother born on May the 12th, 1921 in Toronto. She leaves behind a very dysfunctional family that she was very, very proud of. Pat was world-renowned for a lack of patience, not holding back her opinion, and a knack for telling it like it is. She always told you the truth, even if it wasn't what you wanted to hear. It was a school of hard knocks, and yes, we were told many times how she had to walk for miles in a blizzard to get to school, so suck it up. These words of encouragement, wisdom, and sometimes comfort kept us in line, taught us the school of hard knocks, and gave us something to pass down to our children, Everyone always knew where you stood with her. She liked you or she didn't. It was black or white. As her children, we're still trying to figure out which one it was for us, although we know she loved us dearly. She was a master cook in the kitchen. She believed in overcooking everything until it chewed like rubber so you would never get sick because all germs would be killed. Freezing germs also worked. So by Friday, our school sandwiches were hard and chewy but totally germ-free. All four of us learned to use a napkin, so we, we would pretend to cough, spit the food into it, and thus was born the Stocks Diet. If anyone would like a copy of her homemade gravy, we would suggest you don't. She will be sorely missed. Um, we learn a lot about someone from obituaries, uh, even epitaphs. Here's one uh, that read, uh, had four beautiful daughters with only one bathroom, and yet... There was still love in the home. You know all about that, don't you, Lord Lee? Yeah. Um, <laughs> well, we're starting Second Samuel today. We're continuing a series—the series, a need for a king—and Saul, whom Israel wanted as their king, has been an utter failure, to say the least. He had a disregard for God's will, as and as a result, he was rejected by God as Israel's king. But providentially, as we have seen in the second part of 1 Samuel, God has been directing David's steps from Jesse's pasture to the throne. David has just returned to Ziklag after rescuing his family, whom had been taken captive by a band of Amalekite raiders. And all the while, Saul is fighting the Philistines. But in that battle, as we read last week, Saul not only loses the battle... But he and his sons lose their lives. Well, 2 Samuel can be outlined in the following ways. Chapters 1 through 10 is about David's victories or maybe his triumphs. And the second half of the chapter is about his failures, his defeats, and his troubles. But David the king is the central central figure here in 2 Samuel. Verse 1 through 10 is Hunter's Red Force. It's been three days since David returned to Ziklag. And an Amalekite wanders into Ziklag. He tells David he was from the battlefront and came to bring him news. He tells him how the Israelites had lost the battle and how he himself had actually killed King Saul. But hold your place there. Just flip back to the next um, chapter, chapter 31 of 1 Samuel. Let's read verse 3 through 6. This is the account we read last week of how Saul died. The battle pressed hard against Saul, verse 3, and the archers found him, and he was badly wounded by the archers. Then Saul said to his armor-bearer, Draw your sword and thrust me through with it, lest these uncircumcised come and thrust me through and mistreat me. But his armor-bearer would not, for he feared greatly. Therefore Saul took his own sword and fell upon it. And when his armor-bearer saw that Saul was dead, he also fell upon his sword and died with him. Thus, Saul died, and his three sons, and his armor-bearer, and all his men on the same day together. Well, we have conflicting stories here, don't we? One from chapter 31, which seems to be God's rendition of the story of how Saul perished. And then the one here in chapter 1 of 2 Samuel, the Amalekite, seems like, a fabrication of what actually happened. Well we do know that the Amalekite was there, don't we? Because Saul is dead. We know that. The Amalekite was there because of the presence of the crown and the armlet from the king. To me, it just seems maybe the Amalekite is using this situation to his advantage. Maybe he's trying to butter up to the new king. He wants to get in good standing with him. And you can imagine the anticipation of the Amalekite as he brings news of Saul's death. I mean, Saul had been hunting David like an animal for a long time, wanting to take his life. He knew that David was to be the next king. He thought David would have been happy or at least relieved upon hearing that he's done living in hiding. He thought he was bringing David good news. But as David goes on to tell us in 2 Samuel chapter 4, verses 9 and 10, speaking to two others, he says, As the Lord lives, who has redeemed my life out of every adversity, when one told me, Behold, Saul is dead, and thought he was bringing good news, I seized him and killed him at Ziklag, which was the reward I gave him for his news. So, this Amalekite is excited. He's excited bringing news of Israel's demise, of Saul and Jonathan's death. And now that Saul and Jonathan are dead, David has nothing keeping him from taking the throne. He, he expects to be rewarded by David. Can you imagine his surprise when he tells the news and David doesn't rejoice? He doesn't thank the Amalekite. He doesn't breathe a sigh of relief, but instead, what does he do? What does the Scriptures tell us he did? He tore his clothes, and he's in agony, and he's in anguish, and he's mourning, and he grieves over Saul's death, over Jonathan's death, over Israel's defeat. They cried all day and into the night. The Amalekite had to know he was in trouble at some point in time. I mean, he brought the crown to David, but David has yet to put it on. So verses 13 through 16 of chapter 1, David questions the Amalekite again. After he gets his composure, they mourn a while, they grieve a while, they weep a while. He gets his composure, and he asks the Amalekite again, okay, let's run through this again. Tell me how this happened. And David asked him in verse 14, do you not fear God? I mean, Saul was God's anointed. He was the appointed king. I mean, no one takes out the king unless God does it himself, right? I mean, David was pursued by Saul, and he had him in his sights. He could have taken his life several times. In fact, he cut off one time a piece of his robe as Saul is in a cave relieving himself. And do you remember the, the anguish Saul, I mean, David experienced because of that? He didn't touch Saul, and he touched his robe, but yet he felt terrible. But David never touched the Lord's anointed. He dare not do that. So, this Amalekite, he's put the noose around his neck without realizing it, right? Bob Deffenbaugh, he's a pastor in Texas, he tells a story about the wide mouthed frog. Some of you have heard this. But Mrs. Frog would go about asking other mothers what they fed their babies. She would ask one animal and then another. Finally, she came upon a snake and she said to it, Mrs. Snake, what do you feed your babies? Well, she didn't say it like that because it's a wide-mouthed frog, right? So she says something like, Mrs. Snake, what do you feed your babies, right? And Mrs. Spe- Snake responded, Well, I feed my babies wide-mouthed frogs. So Mrs. Frog, with lips pursed ever so tightly, replied, Oh, really, right? What has Miss Frog done? She had, like the Amalekite, she had, set herself up to be lunch, right? The Amalekite had set himself up for his demise. I mean, he tells David he's Amalekite. He almost brags about killing Saul and he speaks lightly about the death of Jonathan, David's dearest friend. With every passing moment, the news just tightens and tightens, right? And David orders in verse 16 that the Amalekite messenger be put to death. So you think, well, that's kind of harsh. He's bringing him good news. He thought this would be something David would be happy about. But if you believe that the Amalekite did kill Saul, then, well, justice is served, right? I mean, he killed the Lord's anointed. Or if you think he didn't do it and he's he's a liar, he fabricated the story, then he lied to the king and justice was served. But if neither of those two reasons help you stomach David's execution of the Amalekite, then just remember what God had commanded Saul to do previously. What did he... What did he tell them to do with Agag and the Amalekites to wipe them out? And not only that, but where are they? They're in Ziklag. And what had just happened to David's family in Ziklag, the city was burned and his family was taken captive and David had just returned after rescuing them and defeating the Amalekites. So either way, justice was served. But disobedience is like the gift that keeps on giving, isn't it? I mean, Saul didn't defeat the Amalekites, he didn't obey the Lord, he's rejected as king, but then you keep seeing the Amalekites popping up time and time again, if Saul had just obeyed, right? But in verse 17, we see this eulogy. He eulogizes Saul and Jonathan, and he says that this eulogy is to be taught to everyone and put into the book of Jasher, and this book of Jasher was a collection of poems, a collection of songs that commemorated great events in Israel's history. And we see this book brought up again in Joshua chapter 10, verse 12 and 13. It's another poem that was to be placed in. If you remember Joshua, when the Amorites were defeated, when the sun stood still, at that time Joshua spoke to the Lord in the day when the Lord gave the Amorites over to the sons of Israel, and he said in the sight of Israel, sun stand still at Gibeon, and moon in the valley of Ajalin. And the sun stood still, and the moon stopped until the nation took vengeance on their enemies. Is this not written in the book of Jashar? The sun stopped in the midst of heaven and did not hurry to set for about a whole day. That's Joshua 10, verse 12 through 13. So we see this book mentioned again. And so he wants this to be placed in this book, and he wants it to be read by everyone. And this epitaph that we're, we're, we've read, it teaches more about, I think, David's heart than Saul and those fallen. But let's look and see, kind of three, broken this up three ways. Firstly, what do we, what do we learn about Saul from this eulogy? And I will say, doing eulogies can be difficult um, at a funeral, especially if you don't know the person. So what I typically do, Brian, is I'll have, if I don't know the person, I get calls often uh, to do funerals. And I want to do those because it's a way to serve people, but it's also a way to bless people and to share the gospel. Because at funerals, people are typically uh, confronted with their own mortality and willing to, to hear and listen. But sometimes I don't know the family and i don't know the deceased and so what i'll do is ask the family to write something out that they would like to be shared about this person that i don't know but it's a lot easier if i know the person but what if there's not very much good to say you've been to those funerals haven't you person that's not very not very good not very, don't have integrity They've treated their family terribly. They've been irresponsible. And you go to the funeral. That happens sometimes. Well, Saul has been trying to take David's life. And what happened to the Amalekite actually should have happened to Saul. Think about it. The Amalekite, Miss Lou, the Amalekite is is put to death because he says he killed the, the Lord's anointed. But what was Saul trying to do? For the past several years, he's trying to kill the Lord's anointed. Right? What do we learn about Saul from this eulogy? David actually doesn't say anything negative about Saul. This wasn't the time, right? Just like funerals in our day, right? If you go and you just know a lot about a person, you're like yeah, they 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 passed away, and there are really not a lot of good things to say about a person. I don't really know what to say. I have to come up with something. And sometimes, you know, there's, people don't always tell the truth at funerals, right? That happens as well. But at a funeral, it's not time to throw mud, is it? David said in verse 19 that Saul was mighty. I mean, he's the first king of Israel. I mean, think about our first president, we think of George Washington, and we think a lot about his life, you've read it, read any, Uh, biographies about him being his integrity things he his bravery the things he was able to accomplish but a lot of times we hold him in high regard why because he's the first president of the united states right because of the office that he held and that's what david is doing with saul i mean he's the first king of israel and that we should respect the office he was the first king in verse 20, David doesn't want Saul belittled, right? Even, even think about those returning Philistine uh, soldiers coming from the battle. They just defeated the, the Israelites. He doesn't want them to belittle Saul and Jonathan. And he, he even goes so far as to curse the place where the kings perished, Gilboa, right? It's where they died. In verse 22, he points out how brave Saul was. From the blood of the slain, from the fat of the mighty, the bow of Jonathan, turn not back, and the sword of Saul, return not empty. I mean, think about Saul. You can say this about him. Um, there's a lot of bad things you can say about Saul. But the one thing you can say is he had some bravery in him. Because think about what happened the last time we see Samuel before he dies. Is he is, he's went to the witch of Endor. And he wants to talk to Samuel. And Sammy, he asks the, the witch to bring up Samuel from the, from the dead. And Samuel talks to Saul. And what does Samuel tell Saul? He says, the Lord's not speaking to me. The Lord won't answer me. Tell me about this battle. And Samuel tells him, No, you're going to, you're going to die and your sons will die. You'll be with me Tomorrow. So that's the next day, and what does he do the next day? He goes, he leads his army into battle against the Philistines. Because the Philistines are coming, right? And they're coming because Saul has run his commander-in-chief out of the country, David. So David's not there, so the Philistines are wreaking havoc. So he goes to battle to defend his, his country, and what does he do? He dies. And you think about that. If you think about the first time we see Saul in battle, he's shaking in his boots. Remember Goliath? bringing out threats, ridiculing Israel, Saul, God, Israel's God. What is he doing? He's in his tent, shaking in his boots, not willing to go to battle. But here we see him on his last day. What does he do? At least he leads his, leads his people into battle, even though he dies. So he's grown at least this way. He courageously faces his foes. Well, that's a, Saul. Right? He doesn't mention anything negative about Saul. He talks, calls him mighty and... He's, he's good at his craft, right? He's a, a soldier and a fighter, and he was brave. What do we learn about Jonathan? We've seen the bravery of Jonathan um, in 1 Samuel 14. He and his armor bearer went up against a garrison of Philistines and defeated 20 Philistines by themselves. We know he's very brave. Verse 23, David says that he and Saul were were good at their trade. They were swifter than eagles. They are stronger than lions. But I want to focus just verse 25 and 26 if we could. Jonathan lies slain on your high places. I am distressed for you, my brother Jonathan. Very pleasant have you been to me. Your love to me was extraordinary, surpassing the love of women. Now Jonathan and David, they had kindred spirits. Jonathan was someone David could count on and trust. They wept together. They fought together and Jonathan was more loyal to David than he was his own father who was the king of Israel. Thinking about Psalm seventeen, seventeen, A friend loves at all times and a brother is born for adversity. Yeah, a friend's someone who loves you, isn't he? And that's what Jonathan did to David. It says his love for David was extraordinary, surpassing the love of women. Now, don't read this through the lens of our own culture today. Some would mentioned this may be a homosexual relationship, but that's not the case. It's a sacrificial one, right? Jonathan was willing to give up his title, his privilege, his life for David. And Jonathan, he didn't want to advance himself, but David's cause. I I recalled thinking back of Jonathan, 1 Samuel chapter 23, verse 15 through 18, David saw that Saul had come out to seek his life. David was in the wilderness of Ziph at Horesh. And Jonathan, Saul's son, rose and went to David at Horesh and strengthened his hand in God. Isn't that awesome? He strengthened his hand in God. Our David had a good friend in Jonathan. And I think about that. We need friends like that at times, don't we, to help us find strength in... God, maybe some of you even now are struggling, going through hard times. You need someone to help you find strength in God. So Saul is brave. Jonathan is a, a good friend, but what about David? What do we learn? And and we gives an epitaph. Usually, it's talk about the person, and you learn a lot about the person. Just as the the, the mother that I read the the eulogy about or the obituary about, we learn something about here. But I think in this text, we learn more about David than we do about Saul and Jonathan, even though he's speaking about Saul and Jonathan. So what do we learn about David in this eulogy? And I just want to speak up here and say, I don't really agree with David here, you know? I thought Saul was a terrible king, you know? I mean, he is a, he's, self-absorbed leader. he's a self-absorbed leader. He's a taker, right? And no one likes a taker. Someone's always taken, taken, taken. But David didn't bring up the bad, did he? He just, he just brought up his good points. David, I think he sees Saul in a much better light than we do. But, but I'll ask this question. Do you see the good in other people? Do we see the good in others? Sometimes we're pessimistic, aren't we? We're, we can be negative and critical. And some of us, maybe we have critical spirits most of the time. But we see David here. being gracious to Saul. And, and you think about it, it's, when we're in a bad place, um, it's, it's real easy to think the worst in people, right? And I even think about confessing sin. You know, the Bible says that we should confess our sin to one another, that we may be healed, but we don't do that a lot of times. Thinking about that, even on our Wednesday night, we, on Wednesday night from 7 to 7.50, we, we study the Bible. We're studying Ephesians, the adults are, and they're our adult Bible study. But every other week we have prayer time and we have confession time. And sometimes people will confess even praying those um, confessions to the Lord. But I think we don't do that very often because we think maybe someone will think bad of us or someone will say something negatively about us. And maybe that's because that's probably what we would do. So we think the worse than others because we're thinking about ourselves. But... Yeah, we, we have a tendency to be negative, to be critical, to think the worst in other people and not the best. But we don't see David doing that here, do we? David had all the reason to throw mud at Saul, but he refrained. And he not only honors Saul, but he wants all of Israel to honor Saul. Saul. Yeah, he saw the good in, in Saul. The second thing that, about David is he wasn't power-hungry, he wasn't prideful, he wasn't arrogant, he was humble. I mean, think about it, Haley, if the crown is brought to him by this Amalekite, and he didn't place it on his head, but he tore his clothes, right? Power-hungry pre- people, prideful people, they don't weep when their competitor fails. They don't. They rejoice. But what do we see David doing? He, he weeps, he tears his clothes, he's grieved because his arch rival has been killed. Psalm 138 verse 6 reminds us, For though the Lord is high, He regards the lowly, but the haughty He knows from afar. Thought of Jesus when he was at the Pharisees' house eating dinner, he tells a parable of the wedding feast, and he's what he's doing is he's teaching these people to be humble. He's at the Pharisees' house, Luke fourteen eleven, for everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. James four eight, right? God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble, right? Yeah. Yeah, so he was humble, I think. We Find that about David. He's a humble man. I would say he's a good friend. You know, Jonathan loved David very much. And he says Jonathan was a good friend to him, but that was reciprocated, I do believe. See that in his grief for Jonathan. But lastly, I think we see that David loved his enemy. I mean, David could have easily mentioned this this death of Saul as being divine vindication, right? I mean, Saul's just reaping what he sows, but David didn't do that. And I think he didn't do that, not just because he, he, he loved Jonathan, but I think he truly loves Saul as, we, as he grieves. And even in the times where he confronted Saul about his sin, why are you pursuing me? You can see there's the, a love and affection for Saul. Why didn't... David gloat. Why was he not even relieved at Saul's passing? It's because he loved Saul. I mean, how, how can he be broken hearted over the one who made him, his life miserable? Because he truly loved Saul. Reminds me of another king, right? King Jesus. While we were yet sinners, while we were Christ's enemies, He died for us. And that's what David does, doesn't he? He points us towards Christ and what Christ has done for us. He is a type of Christ. Not perfect like Christ, but he's a type of Christ. He points us to Jesus. Maybe we'll just close with a couple points of application. How do we apply this text? I think one thing is that just because we have opportunity to sling mud, that doesn't mean we should. I mean, think about it, being honest and truthful does not require telling everything that could be told or everything we know to be true, right? David is honest and he's truthful and he's godly while not telling everything he knows to be true of Saul. I mean, sometimes the church is edified just as much by our silence as what we say. So I think that's about just a way of application. Maybe we don't always need to say the things that could be said, right? And there's many times we do need to speak up, don't we? I mean, we need to rebuke. And David did that on several occasions, right? When he cut off Saul's the hem of his robe, when he stole his spear and his water jug, he rebukes Saul. So there's times where we need to speak truth, and there needs to be word of admonition or word of rebuke, of course. We don't overlook sin, but we don't dwell on it either. Philippians 4.8, I, I, this New Testament teaching, we see David actually doing that. Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is any excellence or if there is anything worthy of praise, think about these things. David's doing that with Saul's and his death and how he was treated. So that by way of application, maybe that we should think about that. We don't always have to say everything we know or everything that could be said, right? Secondly, by way of application, if David was right to be angry because a man killed Saul, God's anointed, how do you think God will deal with those who reject Jesus Christ, his anointed? You're like, well, is this application or are you just making a point or what? Well, the application is, are you rejecting the anointed one of God? Jesus Christ. David is outraged. He said, he, he, the Amalekite messenger, Do you not fear God? What's wrong with you, man? You don't even fear God. How could you lay your hand on the Lord's anointed? He had opportunity after opportunity, but yet he refrained. Do you not fear God? That's God's anointed. Don't touch him. Even if he mistreats you, you have to embrace God's anointed. But yet the anointed one Jesus Christ, his son, who came to earth and he completely faithfully fulfilled the law of God. He lived perfectly and he died a, a, a wretched horrible death. He died for sinners and he was buried and he rose on the 3rd day and But yet, maybe there's some who, even here, who reject Christ. Will you submit to the Lordship of Jesus Christ? Will you repent of your sin, stop living for yourself, and will you repent and will you trust Christ's work on the cross as your own? Jesus died for sinners. Did he die for you? Will you submit to his Lordship and will you confess your sin and follow him? And maybe there's some here who reject him and say, no, I don't want to do that today. I don't want to submit myself to the Lord. I don't want to follow Jesus. I want to hold on to my lifestyle. I want to hold on to my, my own will, my own hobby, my own money, my own mistress, my own lover, my own job, my own money. There's something that keeps you from yielding to the Lord. And lastly, by way of application, something similar is David loved his enemy and Jesus, David's a type of Christ. Jesus Christ, while we all were sinners, what did Jesus do? He died for sinners, right? While we were yet sinners, Jesus died for us. And again, are you God's enemy? We we sing the song, you know. We're forgiven, we're forgiven. Is that true? Well, if you're forgiven, if you've submitted to the Lordship of Jesus Christ, if you repented and trusted Christ's work on the cross as your own, you're not not at enmity with him. You're not his enemy anymore. You're his friend. But I ask you, by way of application, are you God's enemy? Are you at enmity with him? Have you stiffed arm him? Do you keep him at a distance saying, I want to do what I want to do? Or have you submitted to his lordship? And and if that's the case, you need to repent today and trust Christ. Repent today and trust Christ. Also by way of application is we we should love our enemies too, right? What Jesus did, we should emulate him and his teaching. Well, if you have questions about that, I'd love to talk to you. If you're not sure if you've repented and trusted Christ, you say, well, maybe I am. What if I am God's enemy still? Well, God says that when you breathe your last breath, there'll be judgment, and he'll pour out his wrath upon you for all eternity. You'll be separated from the Lord. You're separated now, but you'll be separated for all eternity in hell. That's the consequence of rejecting Christ, of not yielding to his lordship, of being his enemy. So I would encourage you to repent. Love to talk to you about that if you have any questions. We have a lot going on this week. Um, Counselor training today. Party at the Thornton for the students. That's the middle school, high school students. And um, beaver kids on Wednesday night. Next week, potluck. Churchwide potluck. So hope you'll bring something we'll all eat together. But, well, if I can do anything for you, please let me know. Let's be in prayer for one another. And let's leave... I ask the Lord to help us apply what we've learned. Father, we acknowledge that you are good. You've given us your word. You've given us 1st and 2nd Samuel for our edification, for our sanctification. I pray that you would help us this week to apply it. Lord, maybe we may we hold our tongues, Lord, and not say things that we we could say, maybe even tr- true things that we shouldn't say. Father, may we learn to be Self-controlled in that regard. Father, may we yield to King Jesus, the Lord's anointed one. For those here who have yet to repent and trust Him, I pray that you would open their eyes and ears to see and hear His, how good He is, how wonderful You are. May You bring about conviction. Lord, so much so that there's godly sorrow that leads to repentance. Father, for those that are at enmity with you, I pray that you would draw them to yourself, that you would pour out grace, that repentance and faith would occur. Father, help us to be the church you want us to be, that we would love and care for one another in a way that pleases you. Bless us as we continue our day, as we study and train and play. As families go to spend time with one another, may you bless us. In Jesus' name, amen.